Hello, this is the Tribe Stories, the curated sermons, conversations, and collections of poetry of the Tribe Lagos. The Tribe Lagos is a gospel expression based in the city of Lagos, committed to reaching the next generation with the message of God's love and grace. May this refresh and revive you as you listen. Amen, amen. How do you feel the presence of God in this atmosphere? I mean, God is awesome this afternoon. And I believe that there is a generation that is being redeemed for him right now. I I was speaking with Pastor E.C. the other day, and she said this is probably the first time that Lagos has seen the power of leadership gathering together to produce a prophetic gathering and be bold enough to call it Lagos Prophetic. Uh, And so why don't you clap for yourself that you are some of the pioneers of a new movement that's taking place in this city. And I believe that your life will never be the same again. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tommy Arayami, and I, uh, I have been called by God from the age of 15 to raise a prophetic generation for him. And I believe that is part of what I'm going to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant for, is that at the end of my life, other prophetic voices were raised other than my own. And so I am not here for my own ministry, nor am I here for my own benefit. I'm here for your ministry, and I'm here for your benefit, because it's my desire and it's my heart that the kingdom of God no longer situates around one great person, but it navigates around a great people. And I believe that this end time move, I don't believe in what other prophets are prophesying, that it's going to be a nameless, faceless generation. I believe God's going to give you a name, and I believe he's going to give you a face. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry. Uh, I think that's false humility on our part as the church, because God who said, I'll make your name great, hasn't changed his mind. And so I believe God wants to give you a name. I believe God wants to give you a face. But I believe ultimately, Ultimately, that you and I live our lives to glorify Christ and that the ultimate goal is that we be conformed to his image. And the Spirit of God spoke to me several things over uh, Lagos, Nigeria, that I'm not going to share all of them today in this short time that we have. Actually, what I want to do, if you'll permit me, I want to give a little bit of a prophetic message and then I'm going to do some prophetic training. Okay, we'll try that again later. Um, I want to do a little bit of prophetic training because I believe that part of my mandate is in John chapter 10, verse 27, where the Bible says, my sheep hear my voice. Do me a favor and just... Good. You qualify to hear the voice of God. I just want to get that out of the way because so often we think prophetic gathering means I have to be a prophet, otherwise I'm exempt from the meeting. No, we are a prophetic people. And when Christ died, the hearing of the voice of God no longer became limited to a special few alone. And that doesn't make the office of the prophet obsolete. No, what it means is that now everybody has access to the same throne of grace to hear the voice of God. And that means you qualify. Look at the person next to you and say, you qualify to hear the voice of God. 
Okay, that person looks suspicious. Look at somebody else and say you qualify to hear God's voice. As long as you are a New Testament born-again Christian believer, you and I qualify to hear the voice of God. And that is an exceptional thing. It is an amazing thing. I'd love to share my story and my testimony and how I came to know the Lord. Maybe I'll share that uh, next time. I'm giving my calendar to Pastor EC next year. You can pick any date you want. I'm coming. I'm coming. Because I, I love it here. It feels like home. It feels like family. It feels like what's being produced here is, is so much bigger than any one of us. And it's going to take all of us working together to see this. I won't be surprised if in 10 years' time these guys are coming back talking about how we're going to rent out a stadium because there's just too many people coming. I will not be surprised. Um, you know, we've been pioneering in, in Hungary and Europe for a couple of years. And we have seen them move from meeting rooms like this and now they're filling the Phoenix Arena in Hungary because the hunger for the prophetic is so strong that they've had to move to, to stadiums just to carry the amount of people that are coming into the meeting. But I, I want to do a little bit of a teaching today and I want to talk about something that I was supposed to talk about yesterday but I believe this is going to help you and I build for the next 20 years of our life. And if I know there was a, a screen up, I probably would have turned this into a PowerPoint because I think this is a really important message and I think Nigeria needs to hear this message. Prophetically, there are uh, four different turnings in every nation that takes place. Every 20 years, there is a change in a nation. Every 20 years... Every 20 years, there is a change that takes place in a nation. And sociologists have called this turnings. Turnings. Somebody say turnings. Now, what's so interesting to me is how prophetic people are who don't know the Lord. I find it very interesting. One of the things I want to teach about is how the prophetic is not limited to the church. But when God said, I pour out my spirit upon all flesh, he really meant all flesh. And I'm going to teach on that maybe another time, but not today. But it really did mean all flesh. And so that means everybody has an opportunity to come into the arena of the prophetic, whether they are a Christian in the church or Oprah in America. Every single person has an opportunity to come into the environment of the prophetic and what it creates. And well, what do you mean, Tony? Well, even Pharaoh had a capacity for the prophetic. Um, he didn't have a capacity for what the prophetic meant, but he had a capacity for the prophetic. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dream God showed you, just think about that for a second, that God speaks to a heathen king and gives him a dream of the night to save his entire nation. Can I tell you why? Because God loves the church, but he cares about nations. That's a good place to say Amen. He loves the church, but he cares about nations. And he cares so much about nations that he will speak to anybody who will listen just so he can bless a nation. I was going to write a book one day, and it was going to be filled with controversy, and I was going to call it, All God Needs is an Ass. Some of you get that. Because truly... This thing called the prophetic, God opened the mouth of a donkey. I'm telling you, Shrek wasn't made by Pixar. 
it wasn't made by Disneyland. Shrek the movie came from the Bible. The first walking, talking donkey came from a prophet called Balaam who had a donkey that God opened the mouth of the ass to talk. And from there, I preached a message called All God Needs is an Ass. He needs somebody who is available and makes themselves available to give him permission to speak through and to flow through. But every 20 years, and I've got to be precise with my message here, every 20 years, a generation will turn. When a generation turns, structures change. Things change prophetically within nations. In the church, we call this seasons. Prophets like to use very special words. One of the words prophets like to use is season. I should make a prophetic dictionary one day. Every time you hear a prophet say, you are in a season. You know, we prophets love that word. We also love the word transition. It sounds powerful. How are you doing? I'm in transition. And, and, and we, we love these prophetic words. Oh, the Lord's timing. And we love these words. But I want to give it a different word today. And the reason I want to give it a, a different word is because if we're not careful, Christian minutia and Christian rhetoric can lose its potency when you hear it a number of times repeated back to you. So instead of seasons, allow me to use the word turnings. And so there are four turnings. And when Jesus speaks about, oh, this generation, you know when it's going to rain. You know when the sun is going to shine. You know by looking at the clouds, but you cannot observe the signs of the times or you cannot observe the prophetic turnings and every time you discern a prophetic turning you and I get to partner with the Holy Spirit in a new way and many people miss the turnings of the Holy Spirit. I love the fact that we call it four turnings because I believe that the cherubim in Ezekiel are accountable to the throne. How many remember Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel's vision of the throne? And every way the, the wind went, the spirit went, the angels would turn in four different directions. They would turn. But something would happen to those cherubim. And there's a reason why the cherubim turn, but they do not, the Bible says, they do not turn as they go. And I want you to get this because this is pivotal and this is crucial to the time that we are living in today. There's a reason why God gave the cherubim four faces because God always turns in four ways and God doesn't live in a three-dimensional world. God exists in a fourth dimensional space. And so that's why the angels have four faces, because they need four faces to catch the next move of the Spirit of God. I hope you guys are following me so far. And it's also why we need new bodies, because the bodies that we presently live in short circuit and fall over when God moves into the room. So we need bodies that can carry the turnings of the Spirit of God. 
Are you hearing me so far? And so there are four turnings. And the Bible says, one of the angels' faces is the face of a man, then the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle, and then at the back, the face of a lion. And they don't turn as they go. But when the Spirit moves, they move in that direction. Now, what do I mean? That means if the Spirit is moving forward, guess what's leading forward? Humanity is leading forward. If the Spirit is moving to the right, guess what that means? The oxen is leading. It's time to shift into service mode. If, if the lion is moving, guess what? It's time for the church to move into their authority mode. That means you cannot turn as you go. You're not allowed to turn into a new season with an old mindset. Are you hearing this? And that means if God builds you for kingdom dominion and kingdom authority, you cannot afford to live your life like an oxen. Because the moment God exalts you, it's false humility to take on the apparatus of the oxen. Now you have to rule like the lion with the oxen in your heart. Now notice these four faces don't shut down. They're all a part of the apparatus, but one is leading at a particular time. Are you hearing this? And so often when God begins to move in his spirit in a new way, we have not renewed our mind. So we're living with an old wineskin when the spirit of God is pouring out a new wine. And so I want to talk to you about some of those turnings that begin to take place in every nation, in every society. The first turning is called a high. We call it a high. H-I-G-H. Now, are you okay if I give you this prophetic message today? Every generation will go through a high. Generations last about 20 years. Every 20 years, a new generation is born. And that new generation is hardwired a different way from a former generation. So the first 20 years is called a high. And the second 20 years is called an awakening. Every 20 years, you'll go from a high to an awakening. The third turn is called an unraveling. And the final turn is called a crisis. A high is a post-crisis era where institutions are strong and individualism is weak. Society is mutually confident about the direction that it wants to go in. When there is a high, churches grow. When there is a high, people say amen to a message that they have not yet verified. When there is a high, everybody's echoing and parroting the same thing. When there is a high, everybody trusts the news. When there is a high, everybody trusts media. When there is a high, everybody, everybody trusts structures and trusts systems. In a high, everybody trusts their government. Can I tell you, the greatest Thing that happened to the children of Israel was when Joseph was born because he led a generation into a high, didn't he? 
He led a generation into a high. But years later, a generation rose up that didn't even know the covenant Joseph made with Pharaoh. So all of a sudden, a high can turn into a crisis very quickly when the church doesn't know how to build generationally. Now listen, I know this is probably a really simple message and you want me to just preach and shout and and holler and whoop and prophesy and get to it. But can I tell you, if you'll hear this message, it's going to bless you for the next 20 years of your life. You are going to build your life for the next generation and not for yourself. Every time there is a high, institutions are strong. Individualism is weak. Society is confident about where it collectively wants to go. The second turning is called an awakening. This is an era where institutions are attacked. All of a sudden, you begin to see people rising up on social media, judging churches, speaking about leaders, criticizing offerings. Are you hearing what I'm saying? All of a sudden you begin to see society begin to atomize. They begin to go from mass media to social media because they no longer trust mass dissemination of information. They now begin to source their own truth. They now begin to source their own information. In an unraveling, institutions are weak and distrusted. And can I tell you, every 20 years the church will be distrusted. Hello? Every 20 years, the church will be distrusted. Every 20 years, the church will go from a high to an unraveling. And in an unraveling, somebody somewhere will read a scripture and they'll go, hang on a second. Why are we bowing down to people? Hello? Hang on a second. Surely there's more in the church than just being an usher and a deacon and a pastor. Hang on a second. When was the last time somebody gave me my business ministry? Hang on a second. Ephesians says apostles and prophets. Why are there only pastors in the church? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Every 20 years that will happen. Some of the greatest leaders were raised in an unraveling. Some of the greatest leaders, Martin Luther, and I'm not talking about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant movement, was raised in an unraveling. He was raised up out of questions that the Catholic Church used to do, because the Catholic Church would only translate the Bible in Latin so that only the priest would read it. And the priest thought it was too holy, he wouldn't read it to the people. So he, he created these mass books that he would read every Sunday to the people. And then Martin Luther read it, and he was like, what's going on here? Surely we're saved by grace, not by a priest. Is Christ not our high priest? And Martin Luther started what looked to everybody like a rebellion. Can I tell you what was happening? It was an unraveling. The church needs to go through unravelings, otherwise it won't grow. People see unravelings as chaotic. They see it as the worst thing that can ever happen for a church to split and for people to fall apart and for people to lose their members. Can I tell you, it is not the worst thing. He still calls himself the gardener. And can I tell you, as the gardener, part of his job is to prune you. Amen. And so what God is doing prophetically in the nations, I just want to give you a prophetic oversight so that you can build the next few years of your life knowing that you guys are in 
uh, uh, let me tell you which turning you guys are in. The third turning, prophetically, so the second turning is an awakening. This is an era where institutions are attacked in the name of personal and spiritual autonomy. Just when society is reaching a high tide of public progress, people suddenly begin to tire of social discipline, of traditionalism, and of cultural norms that replace the word of God and want to recapture a sense of personal authenticity and spiritual integrity. And all of a sudden you move to the third turning. The third turning is an unraveling. The mood of this era is in many ways the opposite of a high. Institutions become weak and distrusted. While individualism is strong and flourishing, highs come after a crisis when society wants to coalesce and rebuild. Unravelings come after awakenings when society wants to atomize and enjoy. The final turning is a crisis. According to authors, the fourth turning is a crisis. It is an era where institutional life is completely destroyed and rebuilt in response to a perceived threat to a people's survival. Civic authority revives, cultural expression redirects towards community purpose. People begin to locate themselves as, as members of a larger group. People begin to talk about things like alliances and networks and, and working together and, and not competing but completing. When this language revives again, know that you are in a crisis. Can I tell you something prophetically that the Spirit of God spoke to me about? The Lord says, Lagos, you are in a crisis. And a crisis is not a bad time. In fact, the dictionary definition of a crisis is an unstable or crucial time or state of affairs in which a decisive change is impending. Or another definition is the decisive moment. Lagos, can I give you another definition? You are in a decisive moment. You are in a decisive moment. You are in a tipping point time where you can either go all the way forward or you can go all the way back. One of the first crises we see in the Bible was in the book of, of Genesis chapter 37. It was an economic crisis. God raised Joseph to solve a crisis. It was a time when the institutions were being changed and all of a sudden Joseph led a generation into a high. Another person that was raised up was Solomon. Solomon was born at a time of crisis. Institutions, infrastructure was weak. He led the nation into a, a high. Nehemiah was raised in a crisis. He was raised in a time of infrastructural crisis for Israel. He led Israel into a high. David was born in a warfare crisis where he defeated Goliath. Can I tell you what he did? He led Israel into a high. Samuel was born at a time of a prophetic crisis. We call it the dark age of the church. Why? Because nobody was prophesying during this time. There were no frequent prophets. And all of a sudden, Samuel was used to lead a generation out of a crisis. 
Are you following me so far? Jesus was born at a time of a sin crisis and he led an, a generation and a nation out of a sin crisis. Paul was born at a time of a Gentile crisis and he led a generation of unbelievers to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Great leaders are born in a time of crisis. Can I tell you something? The reason I'm sharing this word, and it may seem like a really simple word to some of you, but the reason I'm sharing this word is because if you're not careful, when your season changes, you'll do what Paul uh, Peter did. And let me explain what he did. In a time where everything is changing, human nature reverts back to the one thing that doesn't change. There's a reason why when you lose all your friends, human nature reverts back to the relationship or the ex-boyfriend. I'm not getting any amens today. There's a reason why when you lose everything in your life, you go back to your family. There's a reason why when Jesus died on the cross, Peter said, guys, I'm going fishing. Because when everything changes and we come into a new turn in the spirit, we revert back to the one thing that doesn't change. Peter knew fishing. He was accustomed to fishing. So it was right for him to go back to what he knew, but he didn't discern that he was in a turning. And can I tell you something? The reason why we do this is because for many of us prophetically, God so changes the narrative so fast. All of a sudden, you're in an environment that you're not used to. You're doing things that you're not used to. You look around you and none of the people you started life with are around you today. Because can I tell you what God did? He shifted you into a turn. And if you're not careful, you'll chase back the old friends on Facebook that God delivered you from. Not realizing that those old friends, the reason God fired them from your life is because they can no longer accommodate your new season. There is a reason why Abraham was kept from the promise for so many years. Can I tell you why Abraham was kept from the promise for so many years? Because Abraham had a lot. Take it both ways. Abraham had a lot. And can I tell you, some of you are trying to bring your lots into your greatness. And you don't realize that the reason you're not turning is because you're trying to accommodate others in your success who aren't giving you permission to grow and be who God's called you to be. There is a reason why the Lord said, get out of your family, get out of your father's house, get away from your friends. Because can I tell you something? The prophetic is married to honor. Let me say this. The prophetic is married to honor. A lack of honor will kill the anointing. It will kill it. I'm telling you, one dishonorable look 
can stop the anointing like that. There was a time I was preaching and somebody was just snarling at me. I said, sir, could you come here? I walked with him. I put him at the back of the room and I carried on preaching. Because one dishonorable look can stop the anointing. When Jesus was in Jerusalem and he was prophesying and he was healing the sick, he was, listen, can I tell you, he didn't go there to heal the sick. He went there as a prophet. And the Bible says he could do no great miracle. In other words, he could not flow in his prophetic. So he shifted into his healing capacity because the prophetic needs honor in order for it to thrive. And where there is no honor, you choke up the prophetic grace. And that's why the best way to kill the prophetic is to get enough preachers denouncing it from the pulpit. The moment you do that from the pulpit, you reject the prophetic in your nation. And so in a minute, we're going to do a repentance. And we're going to repent on behalf of every leader, knowingly or unknowingly, whoever spoke against the prophetic. Because can I tell you something? You shift the prophetic in the atmosphere from doing what it's called to do when you do not flow with the honor of God towards the prophetic. And there is a reason. The only ministry that has to be welcomed, received, and honored is the prophetic. Whoso receives and welcomes the prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive the prophet's reward. You've got to honor it. You've got to welcome it. You've got to receive it in your nation. You've got to long for it. There's only one gift of the spirit that, that Paul says, covet it jealously. And it is the prophetic because it must be coveted for it to be received. Can I go a little bit further? When you reject the prophetic, you are as good as rejecting the Lord. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. When you reject the Word of God, you are rejecting the God of the Word. You are rejecting God. And so you and I have got to be ones that hunger for the prophetic again. But let me get back to this. Because can I tell you, Nigeria, the reason you have this gathering is because you are in a prophetic crisis. You are in a prophetic crisis. You are in a time right now where the Lord wants to restore the prophetic back into the heart of the nation. And he wants to restore the integrity of the prophetic back into the heart of the nation. And that means that for many of you who grew up under control that called itself a prophet... There is a need for greater forgiveness on the inside of your heart for spiritual leadership that told you, if you leave me, God says, you're going to die. Or it's not going to be well with you. If there's any of you in this room today who's like that, and, and your leaders aren't here, please just rise to your feet. I just want to pray for you. Or just lift your hand and put it, actually lift your hand and put it back down. I'm going to pray for you if that's you. Put it back down. You, thank you. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just pray. Lord, we ask you right now for a complete covering of any leader who ever flowed in insecurity to speak any words. Uh, Lord, I'm just going to call it what it is, of witchcraft from the pulpit. Father, I just ask you in your precious name, would you heal these hearts where they has been suspicion surrounding what the prophetic is because of what the prophetic did. And Lord, heal the damage of the old prophetic 
that, Lord, we don't repeat the same mistakes. And everybody says, Amen. Now, let's just get into this because I've got to be really quick. We are in the fourth turning. We are in a crisis moment. And a crisis moment is a decisive moment. It It is the very moment that David got into when he faced Goliath. How many know that was a crisis? It was the very moment that David got into when he was with his spiritual father Saul and he saw the man throw a spear and aim it for his head and miss. How many know that's a crisis? Can I tell you what crisis means? Crisis means that you have to make drastic and unusual decisions to bring about drastic and unusual results. That means that you cannot afford when God is calling you into a sphere or a turning of kingship, you cannot afford to accommodate a battered spiritual son victim mentality. You've got to begin to move and operate in a way that allows you to move as a spiritual father even where you felt like you had not been fathered. Can I tell you the biggest crisis that came to David was when all of a sudden these men came to him looking for a spiritual father and he said, the last physical father I had didn't even know I existed when a prophet came to give me a word. The second father I had abused me and threw spears at me and now you're raising me up as a father of a generation who is my age or older than me how am I supposed to do that can I tell you in a crisis you take up your responsibility and when there is no prophet around you like David you prophesy to yourself and you encourage yourself in the Lord because you're in a crisis You're in a time where God is developing something in you that's not like what's around you. Am I preaching to somebody? I know, I know I may not be preaching to everybody, but I hope I'm preaching to the right people today. There are some of you who have been so abused by spiritual fathers that you said to you in your heart, I don't even want one anymore. But God has called and raised up a spiritual father on the inside of you. And all of a sudden you're adopting a people who have been beaten, broken, battered and abused. And you're wondering, how can I father when I have not been fathered? Can I tell you when you're in a crisis, you lean on the Holy Spirit to raise you up as apostolic and prophetic fathers of another generation. And you may say, but God, I don't have a map. Can I tell you what you need to do at that moment? Like Joshua, in the middle of a crisis, can I tell you what God said to Joshua through Moses? He said, Moses, my servant is dead. Your father is dead. The old thing is dead. The old anointing is dead. The old move is finished. I'm done with it. I'm no longer moving there. And the way you are going, you have not been this way before. But if you will meditate on my word day and night, if you will allow it to saturate your spirit, I will raise up a father in you. Sit down for a second. That means none of the resources to build ahead of him He couldn't source it from what was behind him. None of it worked anymore. In a crisis, Saul's armor doesn't fit right. In a crisis, you cannot use the tools of your fathers to fight the battle in front of you. 
And this is why many young people, and I'm going to be blunt here, many young people revert to pornography and alcohol and drugs. You don't have a drug problem, you don't have an alcohol problem, you have a turning problem. Because God is turning you, but you're reverting back to what you know. You're reverting back to the old you because you don't know where the new you is going. You, you, you can't quite see what's ahead of you. There's no map for it. There's no blueprint for it. There's no father to say, sit down. Let me tell you where to go. Let me tell you how to do things. All your fathers are gone. Moses, your father is dead. And now God says, be strong and very courageous. Because in a crisis, you're going to need all the courage you can muster. In a crisis, you're going to need all the strength you can carry. Because you're raising people who are dealing with the same addictions that you're dealing with. I get no amens today. But in a crisis, you got to get over yourself in a crisis. Somebody comes to you and says, I'm struggling with sexual sin. And you just got cleaned up last night and God called you a father in a crisis. Some of your greatest deliverance is coming in your crisis. Because can I tell you, you didn't need to get over that addiction before, but now you're in a crisis. And now that people are looking up to you, and now that people are respecting you, you got to make sure because you're living up to a name that's bigger than yours now. I didn't get delivered from sin just at the cross. I got delivered from sin when I became an apostolic father. All of a sudden I realized this is bigger than me. If I fall, how many people will fall? If I quit, how many people will quit? If I die, how many people will die? In a crisis, God called me. You are in a crisis. In a crisis, you will raise people older than you. And when, I, when, I, when I'm talking to you, I remember somebody came to me one day and said, you're my son. I said, I'm not your son. I said, he said, you're being arrogant. I said, no, 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 you're mistaking my confidence for your insecurity. You are not my son. They said, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean you're not my son? What do you mean you're not my son? You're younger than me. I said, listen, many people grow old. You don't need to be skilled to grow old. It takes skill to grow up. In a crisis, you grow up. In a crisis, you're at Ziglag. And all of your woman and all of your loot and all of your stuff is gone. And there's nobody to preach to you. And there's nobody to prophesy to you. But you start using the washing machine as your worship in a crisis. You are in a crisis. And in a crisis, God commands a generation to arise. Can I give you another word for arise? Grow up! Grow up! Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He'll say, how did God raise you to be a prophet? Can I tell you, I started prophesying when I was 15 years old. I was wearing suits that were three times my size. I was around men who were, who, who were in their 40s and their 50s, and they were calling me a prophet, and I was so scared. I said, God, what if they find out? And God said, find out what? That I'm an imposter. 
And God said, pull up your bootstraps and act like a man. You never had that conversation with God. The kind of conversation where God pulls you to his face and he says, be strong and very courageous. Grow up, you're a father now. You haven't had the kind of conversation Jeremiah had with God when he said, God, I can't speak. I'm just a child. And God said, don't you dare say you're just a child. Pull up your bootstrap. You're a father now. Nigeria, you are in a crisis. And in a crisis, you cannot afford to apologize for your authority. In a crisis, you must be unapologetic for what the Spirit of God has put inside of you. Sit down a second. You guys are making me misbehave. I said, I said, no preaching today. Teaching. Can I tell you? Very few things last forever. The Bible says that there are very few things that last forever. One of the things that last forever, you can take to the bank. Can I tell you how to, how to survive in a world where everything's changing? When I was 15 years old, I realized everything changed. I gave my life to Christ. I became a prophet. All of a sudden, people started rejecting me. I lost all my friends. I felt like I was 50 years old in a 15-year-old body. I was preaching on media, television. I'd come back to my hotel. I'd be the loneliest person in the world. I'd feel so down. I'd feel like I don't even want to prophesy anymore because all of a sudden, people start calling me, and all they want is a prophecy. They don't want to find out how I am. They don't want to know me as a person. They say, oh, you say, how are you? They say, I'm fine. And they say, how are you? And it's just to get up. Oh, I'm down. Can you just minister a word to me? And the first few times, it was fine because when you're young in the Lord, you love the sound of your own voice. But after a while... Life creeps in, you get a little bit older, you stop liking the sound of your own voice, and life gets lonely. And all of a sudden I realized something. I said to the Lord, I said, God, what is going on? And the Lord says, son, I raised you for a crisis. I raised you in the midst of a people who are older than you, who are, and I'm in England, 60% of my church is white. And can I tell you something? They don't always take to the fact that they have a black pastor. I was raised in the middle of a crisis. I was raised in the middle of a crisis in my nation because every time there is a turning, God raises up a different leader. For an awakening, the Lord raises up awakening leaders like William J. Seymour, Catherine Coleman, all leaders of awakenings. Can I tell you, this generation is not a leader of an awakening. This generation is a leader of a crisis. And if you're not careful, you'll read all the awakening books, get all the awakening tools, and have none of the muscles to manage a crisis. You'll do all the praying, all the fasting, all the the laboring on their face for 40 days, all they did this, all they did that, and you'll realize that God's not in awakening mood. God's in crisis mood. And in crisis mode... You can't afford to pray and fast in a crisis. I know I'm not going to get any. This sounds so unspiritual. In a crisis, you've got to work. In a crisis, you've got to have solutions. In a crisis, I don't care about your revelation. Revelation. 
All I care about is your relevance. In a crisis, you've got to learn a new language. In a crisis, you've got to sit down with some Babylonians and ask them to teach you about politics, teach you about liberals and Democrats and Republicans. In a crisis! Your fathers fathered an awakening and they gave you the tools for an awakening. They said night vigil and you did the night vigil and it didn't get you past your crisis. Because none of the tools you learned from your fathers are going to equip you for the crisis that you are in. I implore you when you have children, remember this message. Don't build them for your generation, build them for theirs. Because can I tell you what happened, Nigerians? Can I tell you what happened? Your father's fathered the awakening. And then all of a sudden, there was this wonderful high. Everybody became doctors, lawyers, and engineers. Everybody did that. Do you know why? Because society knew where it was going. All the money was in being a doctor, a lawyer, and an engineer. But now you are in a crisis we can't afford to mass produce Nigerian PhDs. Somebody's got to be a marketing executive. Somebody's got to be a media communications expert. Somebody's got to be a business owner. Come on, in a crisis, we got to change the way we operate. In a crisis, everybody can't be a pastor. Very few things that last forever. And can I tell you, in a world where everything's changing, here, here, here's how to, here's how to lean on the things that don't change. One thing that will never change, never change. You can bank on this one for the rest of your life. The Lord. The Lord. Lamentations 5.19, the Lord reigns forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. The second thing you can bank on, and if you're here for Kingdom Secrets, I implore you to come. Because the second thing you can bank on, when the economy fails, this thing will last forever. His kingdom. His kingdom. Daniel 4 verse 3. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That means these are the ingredients you want to teach your children children forever. Teach them about the Lord because he will never change. Any generation you put him in, they'll still be the Lord. Teach them about the kingdom. Teach them about the kingdom. And can I tell you, many people in the church don't know the kingdom because they confuse the kingdom with the gospel and they're not the same thing. Teach them about the kingdom. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Number three, the third thing that will never change, his mercy. Teach your children about his mercy. His mercy, Luke 1 verse 50, extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Number four, Jerusalem. Jerusalem will always stand. It will never, ever, ever go away. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. First Chronicles 17, 22. For your people Israel, you made your own people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. This is not God speaking hyperbole when he says forever. He means it. Number five, Mount Zion. 
very important because we are Mount Zion. We the church are Mount Zion. Micah 4 verse 7, the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Number 6, the word, the word. Isaiah 40 verse 8, can I tell you this is the most important thing. Anybody, if you're a pioneer, put your hand up. You're pioneering something, business, church, whatever it is, put your hand up. Can I tell you something? Let me tell you the secret God gave Joshua. Meditate on the word. Because when, when everything changes, can I tell you what remains the same? The word. The word is a sure foundation. Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Number 7, and most powerfully of all, I believe, revelation. Revelation or the prophetic. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. Forever. Let me just say this. There are common traits of crisis leaders. Every crisis leader has a common trait. And let me just say some of these common traits. I'm going to give you about five of them if I can. The first trait of a crisis leader is youth. In every crisis, God will always use young people. Check the Bible. Every crisis, God used the youth. That's why, and I'm going to shock you with this. I, I'm a pastor as well. I pastor a church. I oversee churches all over Europe, but I pastor a church on Sunday. I love it. My church is called My Church. Simple. Where are you going? My church. That's the name of my church. So I'm not being possessive when I call it my church because it's his church. You understand what I'm saying? But can I tell you something? I don't believe in youth church. I don't believe in youth ministry. I'm going to shock you with that. I believe that some of your greatest army in the world, you have put them in a room and taught them a couple of scriptures on how to play football. And I'm not going to get many amens on this one. Your greatest army is sitting in the youth department. Yes. Yes. And you're keeping them away from the meat of the word. Yes. And you're putting them in a room with, God forgive me, a person who don't even know where the book of Genesis is. And you're trying to graze a gen- And then you'll invite someone like me or Pastor EC or Pastor Emisi or, or my precious friend Freddie. And you say, come on, you are young. You can encourage my youth. Can I tell you something? <laughs> if you, all your life you're trying to resource outside you won't realize that every Samuel was always inside. And all you got to do is get a little bit prophetic and see the destiny in the next generation. When I was raised up in the Lord, I don't know about you guys, but for the first few years of ministry, every invite I got was youth. Yeah, young, come and preach to our youth. I go to some of the largest churches, they look at me and go, you'll be great for our youth. And I look at them and go, I'd be great for you too. (laughs) 
When you downsize the potential of young people, you diminish their responsibility to manage the crisis because you see them as children, but Psalm 66 calls them arrows. That means they're built for the crisis. God builds children for warfare. The Bible says they'll answer the father's enemies at the gates. I love you too. Some of your greatest potential is sitting in a room somewhere and you're missing the authority that they can carry to answer the enemy at the gate. And that's why I'm so glad to be here today and I'm so glad to see so many young faces here today. Because standing in front of me are crisis fathers and crisis mothers. Youth. God will always use youth to manage a crisis. Always use youth. Most crisis generation leaders are called from their youth because they are pliable. They are not prone to build after what they know or how they were spiritually raised. Being young means that they are often underestimated. So this First Timothy 4 verse 12 says, Let no man despise you because you are young. First Samuel chapter 17, we see David being given responsibility by his dad, Jesse, to take lunchboxes to his brothers. And he's taking lunchboxes to his brothers. He sees Goliath. And when he sees Goliath, everybody else says, he's so big, we won't make it. And I love what one preacher said. David sees Goliath and he says, he's so big, I can't miss him. David looks at Goliath and he sees his promise. Everybody else sees a problem. Because can I tell you, there's something on the inside of this youth generation that is hardwired for crisis. And that's why many of you, when your father said, go to university, halfway through university, you changed your mind and you did something else and you started a business and you ran with something. Because unless there is a crisis, you don't feel comfortable because God has hardwired you to solve a problem. And so David sees Goliath with no military expertise. And he comes to Saul, a master military strategist, and he says, Give what will happen to the person who takes off the head of this uh, giant. His brother Eliab looks at him and says this word. He says, you are so proud. Can I tell you something about this next generation? And this isn't to dog out fathers. I respect fathers. I respect elders in the ministry. But can I tell you something? The true father's anointing knows the difference between passion and pride. And so often what we see in a generation is their passion beginning to rise, but it's being interpreted by their fathers as arrogance. And we have to know the difference so that we can raise a people that are arrows well navigated. And let me tell you something, within every passionate youth, pride is somewhere looking in, in the background. And so he, 
the second thing is being misunderstood. Being misunderstood. It's easy to be underestimated and it's easy to be misunderstood. Number two, number two, crisis leaders are called more by crisis than they are spiritual visions. And this doesn't mean that you're any less prophetic than somebody who saw God on a mountain saying, I'm sending you to the nation. Some of you are waiting for a voice, 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 voice to say, 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 hello, go. You're waiting for that big push. Can I tell you something? Crisis leaders are not called necessarily by a big supernatural vision. What calls them is the crisis. In other words, your pain is your pulpit. Look at your neighbor and say, my pain is my pulpit. The Bible says Nehemiah saw that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. God never said to Nehemiah, one day, go and rebuild. Nehemiah saw it and he recognized a crisis and he went away and he prayed and fasted three days. It didn't say he saw God on the third day. No, in the middle of a crisis, he rose up to create change in his nation. Esther was not one of those that saw a vision of God saying, enter a competition and you'll win. And I'm telling you, the bachelor was not made in the U.S. The bachelor was made in the book of Esther. Are you hearing what I'm saying? She entered a secular competition and she got the man. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And when she married the eligible bachelor, a crisis hit the nation. She did not hear God. Can I tell you, her pain became her pulpit. When you are leaders in a crisis, you have no time to be on a mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The crisis begins to call you. The crisis of drug addiction calls you. The crisis of alcohol addiction calls you. The crisis of political corruption calls you. The crisis of the church's financial lack begins to call you. When David saw Goliath, he didn't say, God said I should kill you. No, he said, is there not a cause? When there is a crisis, the crisis begins to call you. Number three, a drastic breakage from family tradition. If you chase Joseph's family, his father was a farmer, his father's father was a farmer, and his great father was a farmer. And then you see Joseph, prime minister. You see that? When you see all his brothers, warriors, warrior, warrior, his dad was a farmer, he was a farmer, king. When there is a drastic seizure or a drastic change from family tradition, know that you are a leader of a crisis. And the Spirit of God says that there are many of you who have made decisions that have gone against the consent of your family. 
And there are some of you who have even been willing to be kicked out of home just to make crisis decisions. And the Lord says, yet I do not want you to be in a place of regret. For the Lord says, this is a season as I am beginning to raise you for the crisis. The Lord says, I am even going to give you your Potiphar connections and your Pharaoh assignments. Father, we just release that right now in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Number four. A hardwiring for the builder's anointing. A hardwiring for the builder's anointing. Crisis leaders always build. Samuel built the school of the prophets. David built the temple. Nehemiah rebuilt the city. Joseph rebuilt the economy. Crisis leaders have an obsession with building. Everybody says, stay here. You'll be blessed. We already have a good thing going on here. And you go to the other side of town to build something with about five people and the ceiling's caving in. You're a crisis leader. There is an obsession and a need to build something on the inside of you. Number five. And finally, the death or sudden shift in former leadership or former spiritual leadership capacity to perform past culture and tradition towards partnering with the revelation of the Holy Spirit and present truth. Somebody said, say it again. The death or sudden shift in former leadership or former leadership's capacity to perform past culture and tradition towards partnering with present truth of the Holy Spirit. When you notice, let me just say something, Saul died long before Saul died. When Saul lost the mantle, he lost the kingdom. And whilst he still had the manifestations of a kingdom, it was a kingdom in deterioration because he could not move past the tradition of his fathers and the things that he knew how to build. When David rises in a spirit of revelation and he rises in a spirit of wisdom and he rises in a new way to the point that they say Saul slain thousands, David, wow, tens of thousands, know that you're in the middle of a crisis. And the worst thing about a crisis is sometimes God will raise your replacement while you're still alive. And the reason they knew they threw spears at you is because they knew. Can I be bold here? Is that okay? The reason some of them threw spears is because they knew their replacement was serving in the ushering board. And they knew their replacement was serving in the deacon board. And they knew their replacement was serving in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the different departments. And can I tell you something? 
when God begins to raise you up, the uncomfortable thing about crisis leaders is that they're born at the same time as the people they're called to replace are still alive. And there's something so awkward about that. There's something truly awkward about that. When you are uh, David and you're in a kingdom where you know this thing is passing on to you and he knows this thing is passing on to you, you're in a crisis season. And some of you have been shifted out of churches, out of locations, out of places that you were in because your prophetic assignment could not thrive in a place of dishonor. And it needed a place of honor and it needed brothers and sisters who could come around about you to rebuild some of the things that got broken down on the inside of you. I want to give finally just some advice to crisis leaders. Number one. Build vision for at least the next 20 years. Build for the next generation. If you know you're in a crisis, know that right around the corner of a crisis is coming another awakening, another uh, 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 high, sorry. Build for the next generation and build for them for 20 years. And teach them to build for the next generation for another 20 years. Because let me tell you something, there will be an unraveling. Every 20 years, it will happen. Every 20 years, the apostolic model of church changes. The church doesn't change, but the apostolic model of church adjusts and shifts. The wineskin uh, begins to change. So build for the next, build for the first 20 years and the next 20 years. Number two, be crisis leaders, not crisis managers. Be crisis leaders, not crisis managers. What's a crisis manager? A crisis manager is one who says, Oh, Pharaoh, I'm sorry, but you're in trouble. Your economy is about to fail. That's what the dream means. Goodbye. A crisis leader says, I'll give you a 14-year plan not just for how to get out of debt, but how to sustain your economy in another season. How do you become a crisis leader? Don't build for the problem. If you build for the problem, what you're building will become redundant when the problem is solved. Build past the problem. Are you guys getting something here today? I may just be speaking to five of you, I don't know. This feels like I'm one of them. This feels like a leadership message. I may just be speaking to five of you. Don't build for the problem, build past the problem. And how do you do this? Build generationally with the Holy Spirit. Don't build names of ministries that in 20 to 40 years are going to change because it's no longer relevant. Don't write books and put names of presidents and prime ministers that in 20 years are going to change. Build books with generations in mind. Build systems with generations in mind. Build with enough flexibility that makes room for somebody else to change it. Because if you don't, what will happen is God will raise up another David and you'll be the one throwing the next spear because you have not created the capacity for them to create change without you perceiving them as rebellious.
Your effectiveness and longevity will not be measured by the caliber of your preaching or revelation, but by relevance and your ability to effectively and swiftly execute solutions during time of crisis. Number three, pray for wisdom and revelation. A prophetic people. This thing I do is easy. Can I tell you how easy it is? All it involves is intimacy. The Bible says in the book of Genesis, Adam heard the sound of God walking. How many, how many remember being a kid? You remember being a kid and you heard your dad walking up the stairs. You knew it was your dad. Yep, his footsteps are heavy. When it was your sister, yep, that's my sister. Hers were a bit more light and, 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 uh, and gazelle-like. And then you knew your brothers. They were the heavy size, 12 feet, stomping up the stairs in grumpy mode. Can, you tell, can I tell you, you can be so intimate with God that you can hear his footsteps. just takes intimacy that's all it is and it takes it takes recognition the voice of god is not heard the voice of god is discerned pray for wisdom and revelation wisdom and revelation wisdom and revelation make for a perfect marriage some of the most immature prophets in the world are the most revelatory prophets I've met prophets who can prophesy circles around me. I have sons who can prophesy circles around me. If you guys think I'm a prophet, you should meet some of the people that are in my ministry. I mean, they can give you names, phone numbers, addresses, your goldfish's name, your cat's name, your aunt Tukey's name, your social security number, your bank account details. I mean, they are scary, good, prophetic. And yet they come to me and they go, why, why is it that I can give all these great words of knowledge and yet I'm not going to nations like you're going to nations? Can I tell you there's a difference between being anointed and being favored? They're, they're, they're two different things. And so revelation is not the measure of maturity. And for those of you who have been measuring your maturity by your revelation, you're missing the point. I know people who won't receive instruction to this day because they get so much revelation from God that they're filled with arrogance. Can I tell you something? Revelation will puff you up. It will. That's what Paul said. Revelation puffs up, love builds up. I didn't just go back to my room to change. I went back to fall on my face. I said, God, I give all the glory to you. I do it every time I'm done preaching. I will pray after the meeting more than I pray before the meeting. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because revelation puffs up. Love builds up. Revelation, when it fills your head, when God starts giving you revelation about himself, revelation about people, it will, it will puff you up to the point. It's so puffed up, Paul, that God had to send a messenger of Satan uh, just to put something in his flesh to remind him he's still a human being. Revelation is not the mark of, of, revelation is not the mark of maturity. Revelation is the mark of influence. The one with the highest revelation will always have the greatest level of influence. It's true. Any room you go into, if you have more revelation than anybody else, you always have the greatest level of influence in any room. But you don't have the greatest level of maturity. Spiritual prophetic maturity is not measured by how much revelation you have. In fact, there are four markers of the, the seasoning of the prophet. The first marker, I call these the four R's, 
The first marker is revelation. Revelation is the most immature you'll ever be as a prophet. What are you talking about? Tell me, I thought revelation is the prophetic. I thought that's what it's all about. Absolutely, it is. But the most mature, the most immature you will ever be is if you stay at the level of revelation. Oh, I got a revelation. Oh, I saw this. I saw that. And then you walk different. Even your pastor, you don't even call it, you just call him Baboy. Broski, Broski, come here. You, you, you march through life like everything's a chest issue. Because you got a revelation. Revelation is not the mark of maturity. Some of the most revelatory people in the world are the most rejected people because they're full of revelation but they lack wisdom. Revelation, second R, is relationship. If you have revelation but you don't have relationship with God, you're wasting your time because the whole purpose of revelation is to bring me into relationship with him. The reason God shares revelation with me is because he wants to give me a greater relationship. I remember one of my greatest revelations, I was probably 16 years old at the time. I was at my friend's house and we were praying together and I was teaching him about Jesus Christ and I got a revelation all of a sudden of Jesus Christ that I never had before. All of a sudden the power of God hit both of us and me and him on the living room floor, we were out cold. I mean, what felt like minutes was, was probably a whole hour. We were just on the floor and all of a sudden as I'm on the floor, I am translated into into this big banquet, huge banquet, table as far as the eye could see, the longest table I had ever seen in my life. And all of a sudden, I knew I was in heaven. I didn't know if I was in the body. I didn't know I was in the spirit. All I knew was I am in heaven right now. And the first person I was looking for in this banquet was Jesus. For some reason, I knew I wouldn't be there very long. So I was like asking everybody, this wasn't a dream. I was fully in control. I was like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Excuse me. Excuse me. And this guy's eating. I'm like, where's Jesus? Excuse me. Excuse me. Where's Jesus? And all these butlers, as soon as food enters somebody's mouth, a butler will come out of the door and replace that food straight away. It was just clockwork. Boom, boom. Butlers, butlers, food. Eat. Butlers, butlers, food. Eat. The food just never stopped coming. But there was so much pandemonium, people were laughing. I was like, excuse me, excuse me, does anybody know where can I find Jesus? And all of a sudden, one of the butlers came, tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around and looked at him. He said, excuse me, are you looking for Jesus? I said, yes, yes, where is he, where is he, where is he? He said, he said, tell me, Jesus is over there. Can I tell you where he pointed to? The kitchen. I saw Jesus dressed as a butler. He was there the whole time. And in this visitation I was having, he brought a plate of food to me, just like a normal waiter. And they say, he said, are you enjoying yourself? I said, and this is what I said, true story, young boy, this changed my life forever. I said, I said, Jesus, you, you, you're serving me food? 
I mean, I was shaking. Because the Jesus I knew was uh, going to heaven to sit on a throne of glory. But here he is dressed like a butler. And he looked into my eyes. And I'll never forget that face as long as I live. And he said, my son, do you see what I'm doing? I said, you're serving me food. He said, go back and do this for my people. The moment he said that, I opened my eyes. My friend Crispin, big guy, is hovering over me. And I'm laying on the floor looking up at him. And he said, you were gone for ages, what happened? I said, I saw Jesus. Crispin, I saw Jesus. And Crispin says, what was he doing? He was a butler. <laughs> and my friend Crispin went, what? I said, he was serving me food. True story, I kid you not, Pastor. I sat on my chair. I picked up my Bible. And the wind from the window blew open the pages. And I looked down at the page it turned to. And it was in, I think it's the book of Matthew. I might be wrong. But it says, To him who overcomes and is victorious, I will grant him to sit at my supper, and I myself will serve him. I kid you not. I didn't even know it was in the Bible. My heart, me and Crispin were just praising God the whole night. But can I tell you why I shared that story? Because when you see Christ, the King of Kings, serving you, it changes your life forever. All of a sudden, your goal is not how can I be more prophetic? But it's how can I serve you? It eternalizes you. I don't know humility by indoctrination. I know humility by imprinting. I have seen him serve. Any prophetic person who has a revelation of Christ that comes out not looking more like Christ, I question your revelation. Because people who had a revelation of him were conformed into his image. Revelation brings you into relationship. Relationship brings you into the third R of maturity. Responsibility. Every time I prophesy over somebody, I always pass. I do it. I don't do it by rote. I do it um, by, you know, now I, I'm so comfortable with it. It just happens. It's like driving. I pass it through responsibility. I say, God, what is the responsibility? There was a day I was in, a, in, in, in my church and we had some guest pastors come to our church. And I, I was sitting down and I went to one of the pastors and I said hi to him. Wonderful man, has a wife, has twins, beautiful twins. And all of a sudden I had a vision. In this vision, he was, uh, he was having sex with a member of his church that wasn't his wife. Now, as I see this vision, this man is saying hi to me. This man is saying hi to me, how are you? And I'm just like, I'm... Yeah. 
and I'm saying this, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. And I just, I kind of bless you. And he goes, oh, God bless you. And he goes, and I was like, oh, great, great to see you. And I just kind of, I just kind of went away for a second. And can I tell you, because I've so built myself in the prophetic, I can know the worst of a person and I'll still never judge them. I was in a church in, in Hungary and a man came to me. He chased me to my car and he just asked me in Hungarian, somebody was translating, he said, can you prophesy with me? The moment I closed my eyes, I saw a vision of him beating up his wife. I opened my eyes, I looked at him and he was looking for some very encouraging word. Can I tell you something? Edification, exhortation and comfort. I'm going to teach this tomorrow. It's for the prophetic by gift. It's not for the prophetic by office. And I'll touch on that tomorrow. So I saw this man. I was like, did God help me? Have mercy. Oh, what am I going to say? Uh, and I looked at this man. And because God has built his character in me, I can't see anybody less than God's people. Now, in that moment, I saw him beating up his wife. I was thinking about calling some ushers and we were going to lay hands in a different kind of way. You know what I'm saying? But I, but I saw this man. I just thought, how am I going to speak to him? I, I don't want to give him this word. So I just said to him, I said, the Lord knows that you've made some mistakes. And the Lord knows you have been guilty in the past of even bringing some abuses around certain people that you love and are intimate with. And I was careful not to go into specifics because his friends were around him and I didn't want to embarrass him. At the end, he came to me because I beat up my wife. I said, I know, listen, let's just talk and let's get you some restoration and some help. Now, this pastor was a different issue. All of a sudden, I had a revelation, but I had a relationship with the Holy Spirit that gave me a responsibility to him. Are you following what I'm saying? So now I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility as a prophet to restore hearts back to the Father, not to make hearts feel condemned by the Father. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That, that's the line that I'm always towing. How do I take my relationship and carry forth my responsibilities at the same time? Uh, and that's why I said Revelation is the most immature you'll ever be as a prophet. And so, Because what do you do? Exactly, what do you do with what the Lord gives you? So I'm constantly towing this line. I mean, there are things I shared with him in my hotel room that I wouldn't prophesy publicly because I think they're just matters of the heart that are so intimate. I, don't, I have a responsibility to make sure that I'm not going to put out all his details in front of everybody. Are you following what I'm saying? There are things that you've got to learn relationship and responsibility. If God's speaking to you at that moment, okay, God, I hear you. Can I share that tomorrow? And you're still prophesying. Okay, God, I hear that. And you put that in the back burner or you write it down somewhere and then when you have a quiet time together, you share it with that person. Are you following? So there are things intimate. There are things that you have a responsibility for. So I said, what do I do? There's this pastor. I'm shaking his hand. I see another woman and the other woman is in the room. <laughs> yeah. That's a tough one. And I know the wife and I love the twins and I don't want their family to fall apart. So I ask God for wisdom. And wisdom is not the, wisdom is not just the voice of God. Wisdom is divine intuition. It's the ability to know what to do when you just don't know what to do. So all of a sudden I was, I, I felt the Lord said, well, tell me, do you have a responsibility to him? I said, well, I have a responsibility to you because you give me this word. He said, but are you his pastor? I said, no. So he said, who's his pastor? He told me, tell me, I remember who his pastor was. So I went to his pastor and I said to his pastor, hey, listen, 
I don't have a responsibility to your team, but I saw a vision that you might want to know about that that this is your team that's involved in. And I shared with him what happened. He went and shared it with the man. The man confessed. He said, yes, it's true. And, and he repented and he went through a restoration program. Can I tell you, his family is still intact today. Why? Because when you apply the wisdom of God to any given situation, you create change. Now, I wasn't always like this. I'm going to write a book one day called Signs and Blunders. Because I made a lot of them. I was cold when I was 15, so I loved the sound of my own voice early on in ministry. I used to sound like T.D. Jakes. I used to preach like him till I got a sore throat. Get ready, get ready, get ready. And my brother looked at me and go, what is wrong with you? You know, I, I, I just, you know, when you're young in the Lord, you just, you just love yourself too much and you just love your greatest revelation too much and, and God slaps you up and grows you up. But here I was in this, um, in this, one of my first churches I ever planted real church, I don't mean like a, a dinky thing in the corner, it was when I was 18 and I planted a church in Hertfordshire in the UK and the church grew strong and I remember one day being in the church and uh, one of the pastors, one of my own pastors, um, was, uh, um, had a fiance uh, but he was, uh, had a vision of him and I saw a rope connected to a girl five hours back. And immediately, in the spirit, the Lord showed me that they were doing the business behind his fiance's back. So this is what I did. I was 18. You! Had the pastor look like like he was going to receive the best word in the world. God bless him. You! Stop sleeping with her! And the whole church... And that precious fiancé... And that girl leaves the aisle and runs out of the church. And everybody was like... Can I tell you, next week in the church, I had about 10 members left. True story. True story. True story. If you want to be, if you want to be the I lost every single member. I mean, I remember going back to my room. I said, it's because I'm a man of God. (laughs) Persecution has come. They have rejected me on account of my prophetic anointing. And can I tell you, in that moment, I grieved the Holy Spirit. Because I had a revelation, I had a relationship, and I had a responsibility. And I did not carry that responsibility forward with the wisdom of God. But responsibility is not even the measure of your prophetic maturity. The final R is response. How? 
how you respond to your prophetic word will determine what God does next. God will always increase revelation upon somebody who responds well to their last revelation that they inputted and applied. Response. Response. One day David slept with a woman. Let's go back to Moses. One day Moses in the book of Numbers married a black woman. She married, let's call her Shaniqua. He married Shaniqua. He married Shanene. And he wasn't allowed to marry Shanene. God, God told Israel during that time, you're only allowed to mix with the Israelites. But he married Shanene. And all of a sudden, Shanene's friends gathered around and said, I mean, the prophets of Moses gathered around and said, is Moses the only prophet? God speaks to me too. The Spirit of God says, you're married to the wrong woman. And the Bible says, and God heard it. God said, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, come out, you three. Come, come all of you. I want to talk to you for a second. So they all come out. Meanwhile, Shanene is taking off her earring going, I know she didn't just, mm. <laughs> hold my handbag. <laughs> Shanene still, she still got that gangster in her. So she's a bit. So, so God, that's, that's the King Tommy version. So God calls him and, and they all come out and he says, when there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, speak to him in a dream and I make myself known to him in a vision. God didn't say you guys are false prophets. They were true prophets. They truly heard a word. They had a revelation. They had a relationship with God. But they also had a responsibility. And they did not respond well to the revelation they received. A prophet in the Bible had a dream or a vision. I don't know how it happened. But the Lord showed up to this prophet and the Lord said to this prophet, hey, your king has slept with another man's wife and killed the man. I need you to go and tell him. I don't believe that God gave the prophet a parable. I believe that God spoke to the prophet. He gave him a revelation, which gave him a relationship, which gave him a responsibility what is the responsibility? Well, who am I prophesying to? I'm prophesying to a king, a government leader. God have mercy. I better do this with respect and honor. Some of us young, immature prophets will just go, the Lord told me you've been sleeping around and killed the man's wife and you're going to get judged. I wonder why you get kicked out of every church you go prophesy. You're not anointed, you're annoying. There's a difference. I know I'm not going to get any amens on that one. He said, hey, king, in your kingdom, a man had a thousand sheep, a man only had one sheep. The one, with, the one with a thousand went to the one with one and took his sheep and killed it and said to his guest, what will happen to such a man? In other words, he was so wise, he let the king rebuke himself. He said, in my kingdom, bring me the man. Go get him, go get him. Bring him now, I'll kill him. He said, sir, you're looking at the man in the mirror. <laughs> Wisdom and revelation make for a perfect marriage. And that's why Paul said, pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of 
him. So pray earnestly every day for wisdom and revelation. I've got to finish this. Number four, learn to strategically partner with pharaohs knowing that your gift makes room for you. Learn to strategically partner with pharaohs knowing that your gift makes room for you. And that's one that we're going to have to unpack at another time uh, later. Number five, do not be so fixated on where you are called to end that you despise where you are called to start. And what I mean by this is conditionally Joseph was called to be the next pharaoh. But positionally Joseph was Potiphar's toilet cleaner. Yes? Don't despise where you are for where you think you ought to be. Appreciate the place God has put you in. If, listen, and can I tell some of you what that means? Divine positioning. What's divine positioning? Divine positioning means that you may not get the job you want, but you get the positioning you need to get the job you want. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's better to be the toilet cleaner in the job you want than to go work in Tesco's waiting for the position you need. So Joseph knew that if he's called to government, that as long as he can serve in the toilets of government, one day he'll walk in the halls of government. Don't despise small beginnings. Number six, do not misappropriate your time trying to convince family and friends of your vision. Let the fruit speak for itself. I'll say it again. Do not misappropriate your time trying to convince family and friends of your vision. Let the fruit speak for itself. I believe if Joseph was alive, he would have wanted to hear that advice. Number seven, do not allow yourself to be controlled. And this is a really important one. A crisis generation has always been a controlled generation because they're moving against the grain. And when you move against the grain, Jezebel hangs at the hinges of anybody who's moving against the grain. And so you have got to build in a way that doesn't allow your life to be controlled. In the book of Revelation, God was not speaking about Jezebel. Revelation 2, God was not speaking about Jezebel. God was speaking about the tolerators of Jezebel. That means God is more angry at a tolerator than he is at a perpetrator. I I know you're not going to say many amens here today. But that means God is more angry with those of you that put up with control than he is with the fact that you're being controlled. And so he says, I have this against you, not Jezebel, you, that you put up with control. And so don't tolerate control in your life. Set boundaries around your life. Not walls, boundaries. Boundaries tell others where you end and they begin. Set up healthy boundaries within your family. Set it up with your parents. Set it up with everybody in your life. Let them hear you say no. The greatest power in the world is your ability to say no. When you lose that power, know that you are under control. I wish I could unpack that, but we've got to move on. Remember this, humility, not stupidity. Meekness, not weakness. Number eight, and finally, absorb information and marry people in the realm you are called to thrive in. Absorb information, if you're single, marry people 
in the realm you are called to thrive in. And that doesn't mean that you're doing the same thing, that means you're agreeing on the same thing. One of the greatest statements I ever heard was this. A bird and a fish can get married. But where are they going to live? If the bird says to the fish, come live up here with me, it will die. If the fish says to the bird, come live down here with me, it will die. When Jesus said, be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever, I want to add to that. Be not unequally yoked with the wrong believer. Otherwise, you'll live your life like birds and fishes. Marry somebody and absorb information in the realm you're called to thrive in. And I'm going to teach on more of this tomorrow. Um, tomorrow, I mean in the kingdom training. In the kingdom training, I'm going to share, and I've shared this with, with Pastor Ferdy. In the kingdom training, I'm going to talk about the difference between your job and your work. Everybody has a job and a work. Your job is what you're paid for. Your work is what you're made for. Your job will make you tired. Your work will make you strong. I can fire you from your job, but I can't fire you from your work. These are some of the markers that help you to know your job from your work. Your, your work is who you are. Your job is what you do. When a bird flies, it's not doing a job. It's working. When a fish swims, it's working. When Tiger Woods swings a ball, he's not doing his job. He's working. Every single person in this room is called to find the place they work. And your job, some say, well, if I'm supposed to find the place I work, what is the purpose of my job? The purpose of your job is venture capital for your work. Your job is venture capital for your work. Your job is venture capital for your assignment. And this is why we have many people frustrated, dying, tired, youth losing their strength. Because you're doing your job, but you're not doing your work. When you find your work, you will naturally absorb the information surrounding your work. And this is my desire for you. That you totally, completely find your work. Your job is your employment, your work is your assignment. And when you find your work, you thrive there. Albert Einstein put it like this, and with this I close. Every man and every woman is a genius. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, even the fish will believe it's a fool. The arena of the fish is the sea. The connoisseur of the air is the eagle. You're called to find the arena. You're called to thrive. And for some of you, it's business. For some of you, it's education. For some of you, it's government. For some of you, it's media. For some of you, it's church. For some of you, it's family. But when you find the place you're called to work, all of a sudden, things start to work. Rise to your feet and let's pray. You can log on to thetribelagos.com or email us at Hello at thetribelagos.com Follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter on The Tribe Lagos. God bless.